Let's go to the book of Romans, the book of Reformation. This is a powerful book of Reformation. And the first thing it wants to reform is you and I. It wants to reform us. And from there, it will reform the church. And I believe that God is going to move powerfully in the church, universally in the world, and He's going to do it through an understanding of the revelation of what is within this book, the book of Romans. And so, as we start, we're going to see that this is a case from Rome. And it is the case concerning salvation. How does someone get saved? And so this is a very important case, wouldn't you think? This has eternal consequences. And it takes place in Paul's treatise to the Roman church. Some say it was written to the Gentiles. It's not written to the Gentiles. As you read this, you will see that it is a defense of salvation that's for Gentiles and Jews, but it is a defense against the Judaizers who are saying that you must be circumcised and follow the law to be saved. So uh, it is the case from Rome, and we're going to open the case up with, first of all, the defendant, the case of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our defense comes from the lawyer, Rabbi Saul. Now, Saul was a lawyer. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi, and he studied under Gamaliel, probably one of the most famous rabbis of Israel, and he studied the law. This man understood the law, every jot and tittle. And he lived up to it. And he was zealous for it. He got miraculously saved, wonderfully saved, by meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so he is going to represent the defense and present the defense that the gospel is in fact for all people. When your Bible says Gentiles, it's better translated nations. And what that means is all people groups beside Judaism. It means all nations. Rabbi Saul, now known as Paul, the apostle of Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be our defense attorney. Now, those who are prosecuting this case in saying, no, 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 it is by the law that you are saved and you must be circumcised, those prosecutors that will show up in this writing are the Judaizers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're the ones who said that you must follow the law in order to get saved. And that's the way God had put it, and that's not going to change. And so, of course, that's the situation in the courtroom, but we, of course, want to all stand. Would everybody please rise? Because the judge is coming to the court bench, and that judge is Yahweh, Father God himself. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me, Father God, as you sit upon the throne as judge and you have given all judgment unto the Son, we thank God that you saved us. We ask you to open our ears and eyes to see your righteous judgment against sin that you cannot and never will tolerate, but you have made provision. Help us to see and understand this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've got Yahweh as the judge of this courtroom. And we have the opening remarks. Now, we are literally going verse to verse. I'm using the English Standard Version, the ESV. So let's go to it. Now, Paul, uh, as the defense, is going to stand up. And, of course, he gets to give his opening remarks. And so any good attorney, he's not fighting his case yet. He's not defending it. He's, first of all, just making his opening statements, okay? So we have Paul introducing himself. Hey, everybody, I am Paul, a servant of Messiah Jesus, 
called to be an apostle, which means sent one, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's his physical nature. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Messiah our Lord. That's his divine nature. So he is in fact human and divine. Human through the lineage of David, divine by his power of the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, hey, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to use the word Messiah for Christ so that you understand as he's speaking to the Judaizers, he's speaking about the Messiah. Many times we forget what Christ means. We think it's his last name. But it's a title. It means anointed one, and it means Messiah. So I'm going to substitute uh, Messiah every time we see Christ and nations instead of Gentile. First, I want to thank my God through Jesus Messiah for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God's my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the nations. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish, so I'm eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. And so he greets them, welcomes them, and now he begins his opening argument. And he makes his statement of the intention of what this entire legal treatise is about. And as he turns to those who are in the audience, and he speaks to the Judaizers and the rest of the court, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. <gasps> some gasp. Some sit on the edge of their chair. This is awesome. This is amazing. What is he saying? Is he dare saying that this salvation once offered to the Jews as the chosen people is now offered to all nations? To all people groups? Could it be? He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Messiah. And he says this about it. For it is the power of God. What is the power of God? 
the good news, the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what I'm preaching. He says, I'm not ashamed of that because it is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that amazing? So it's the message, it is the news, it is the truths of who Jesus is, who he died for, and that he was buried and rose from the dead. That message has the power of salvation. Wow. Isn't that awesome? That has the power of salvation. And he goes on to say, this is why. For in it, this gospel message, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. In other words, it's this. It's always been faith. What do we mean by righteousness? Righteousness is a right relationship with God. And so what he's saying is from faith, from first to last, that's what the NIV says, from first to last, from faith to faith, what it means is this, faith was the condition for a right relationship with God from the beginning to the end, always has been. It's not about circumcision. It's not about animal sacrifices. It's not about what particular venue God is asking people to obey. It's always been the faith to obey that created the righteousness. Okay? For Noah, it was building an ark that saved him. So why don't we build arks to get saved? No, it was the faith to trust that God said that I'm going to destroy the world, build this ark, and in faith, He built it, and it saved him and his family. Do you see what I'm saying? It was faith to trust in the shed blood of that animal that provided the coat for Adam and Eve that they could have relationship with Jesus and be covered by what he provided instead of the covering they provided. It's always been by faith. In the Old Testament, he says, from faith to faith, always been faith. The sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood was always about faith. So you brought a lamb, but it was by faith that you laid your hands on that animal and transferred your sin to the animal to make a covering for your sin. That was always by faith. And he's saying it's been by faith all along, but it got lost in the ceremony. It got lost in the law and the legalism for those folks. So the treatise and the declaration he is saying is that salvation is by faith in the cross of what Jesus did for us. That is the gospel of Jesus, and I'm not ashamed to preach it, and I'm here to present it to you today in this courtroom. That's what he's saying. Now, he puts an order to it, doesn't he? He says, first to the Jew and then to the nations. And we're going to look a little later in his argument. He's going to present why. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Faith. Quotes an Old Testament prophet to make his point that even in the Old Testament, it was always by faith. That's his declaration. That's the introduction of what he has to say. And so then, he's now given the opportunity to begin his argument. And so now he's going to present his argument, and he starts with this in verse 18. The judgment of God. And he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Now, we know that the law 
revealed the wrath of God, doesn't it? But what, what is he saying? How is it, why would he say the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men? When, when did God's wrath ever be revealed from heaven? At the cross. At the cross, God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross for every sin and every unrighteous act. Jesus demonstrated, I'm sorry, God the Father demonstrated his wrath while Jesus hung on that cross. He poured out all judgment and all wrath that God had against sin upon Jesus Christ. It was revealed at that point in human history what God would do against sin. And so he poured it out so that all would know that God has poured his wrath out on sin and through his love and obedience of his son, he poured out wrath because you and I could never have endured that wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And he goes on to now make an argument of God's judgment. What's it against? All ungodliness. How much ungodliness? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what God's wrath is against. All right? Because everything else is in obedience to God. There's only one creature that's in disobedience to God. There's only one creature that God made that is generating rebellion, which is sin. And that's mankind. And God being a righteous judge. Let me ask you this about a righteous judge. What about a judge who lets sin go by? Let's say he, he forgives uh, he pours out his judgment and condemnation against all sin except you know, a few white lies, a few little lies. Maybe, you know, maybe you stole something when you were seven and, and he's going to let that go. Maybe he, he, he lets a few of the things go, right? A few sins go because, I mean, after all, we're only human. What kind of a judge would allow any ounce or speck of unrighteousness to exist under his rule? He would not be a righteous judge, would he? He would be a bad judge. Thank you. Yeah, very definitely. He would not be right and just. But didn't he pardon us? Didn't he just excuse our sin? Didn't he just say, that's what grace is? Grace is a, is a pardoning of our sin. God tolerates us again. After all, we are only human. He, he tolerates our sinfulness. That's what grace is. Grace just covers all of our mistakes, doesn't it? Is that what grace is? For many believers, they think that's what it is. But you must remember what Paul is arguing. For God's wrath was poured out from heaven. It was revealed from heaven. You have to understand one thing. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. There is no excuse for sin. Not one ounce or one smidgen or the tiniest sin wasn't paid for. It was all paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin, every sin, every offense to God, and every offense we commit through thought and word and deed was paid for at the cross 
through Jesus Christ, and God judged it. God judged the sin that you and I generated in our past. God judged the sin that you and I are sinning today, and God will and has judged the sin that we continue to perform at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so our remedy is to stay at the cross in that place of forgiveness. Amen? And that is the covering of grace. Grace cost God everything, but it's free to you and I. Hallelujah. Now, he goes on and he says this. Look at what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Any good lawyer who understands the law is going to bring forth two witnesses in any court case. For it shall be established by two or three witnesses, says the law of God. And so Paul brings his first witness, and he is speaking, easy, easy to speak about those who are unrighteous. So who is he speaking about? He is speaking about the guilt of all mankind. Those who are not the Jews, he's talking about the nations right now those that are Gentiles. Easy target, isn't it? The Jews are sitting back and saying, oh, of course, those pigs, those dogs, Gentiles, they are filthy. And so uh, they deserve it. So let's go to the court case. Let's look at his first people that he is going to bring uh, to to the bench here, and that's the Gentiles, the nations. As he brings the nations forward, he brings two witnesses. And the first witness is creation. And as he calls creation to the witness stand, he says this, that there is enough light of revelation that God exists because creation displays the handiwork of God. It displays in its intricacies and in its beauty of design that there is a designer, that there is a power behind creation. And every human being knows this, and every human being understands this, but they choose to suppress it. That's what he said. They suppress the truth for the sake of sin. And so they invent ideas of how things were created and so forth. And he says, but on the day of judgment, they will be without excuse. Think about that for a minute, everybody. Consider the implications that all mankind, even those who don't know Jesus, will be without excuse on the day of judgment because there was enough revelation and light in creation to say that there is a God. It may not reveal Jesus Christ, it may not reveal the fullness of the Word of God, but it reveals the fact that there is a God and that they need to put faith in the fact that there is a God that made all things. Those who do not suppress that truth in their own hearts for the sake of their own sin. And so, that is the first witness. So much so that on the day of judgment when they say, hey, I didn't know that there was any God, 
God is going to say, you're without excuse. Every moment you lived, every day that you breathed, there was revelation in the sky, in the sun, in the trees, in the clouds, in the grass, in the earth, in the systems of gravity, and the ecosystem, and all that is around you was enough to reveal to you there is a designer and that there is a power behind all of this, and it is me, God. You're without excuse. Wow. And so he goes on. He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they've become fools. And they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Sounds like he's describing society today, doesn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. Man hasn't changed. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations, natural sexual relations, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And in and of that is the point of homosexuality it's when a society and when a creation gets to a place where it even denies natural order and natural law that it becomes to corrupt itself and the society becomes so degraded and so self-worshipping and indulgent that God leaves them to their own devices he goes on now again easy easy to condemn the nations uh, in their guilt and sin. He goes on, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And the award this year for the Nobel Peace Prize and the award this year for science and its attributes, and the award this year for the Emmy, and the award this year for the Oscar, and the award this year for this and this, and we celebrate the decadence and the sin and the foolishness as a society. And he says that they know better, and they know these things. And what did the cross show? The wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and he gives the list there of ungodliness and unrighteousness and said a righteous judge must judge these things and so they are condemned now a little later and i'm going to point out now that he brings his second witness in about the gentiles and he says this if you will he says this in chapter 3 verses 14 to 16 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse, even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's pointing out the second witness that stands against the nations or the Gentiles, those who are not the Jews who didn't receive the revelation of God, that they even have the revelation of conscience, a moral law written in nature. And so the two witnesses that stand against all mankind for all time and those who don't even not have the gospel or didn't even have the Old Testament law or anything from Scripture have two witnesses against them. One is this, that God is revealed in creation and the second witness that stands in condemnation against them is that every man and every woman is made with a conscience. Even though that conscience can be seared, that conscience can be altered, that conscience can be changed, it is a conscience in all societies through all time that has given a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And to work against that conscience condemns one's own heart. And they will stand guilty even before God with a conscience that they didn't follow and obey. So God is saying that even man created and fallen has two witnesses in nature and the natural law, the natural moral law, and the nature of all things cosmology made that they could see there is a God. And so what does he say? All the nations are guilty before God and should be condemned. Now, those who are the Judaizers and the Jews in the audience, they would say what? Amen. That's right. That's an easy one. Paul, easy to condemn everybody else in their sin. But in a twist, all of a sudden, the court goes, hush, as they're all applauding and saying, yes, that's right. He turns. And as he turns, he faces the Jews. And he says to them, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do these things I just told you. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew first and to the Gentile. Do you see why he said this is a gospel that must be preached to the Jew first, 
then to the Gentile. Why to the Jew first? Because they will be judged first. Because they were given the revelation of God fuller than any other human being at that time. And so that's what Paul is saying to them at that time. That we must bring this good news of the Messiah who came for Israel, who came through Judaism. They must hear this message and they must grasp it because they, the judgment will be greater on them if they even reject it. And he goes on. And he says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's saying those Gentiles, oh, they'll be judged on two different things. They didn't have the law to be judged by. But they'll be judged by their knowledge of God and creation and even sinning against their own conscience. But you who received the law of God, you'll be judged by that law. James puts it this way, if you break any portion or aspect of the law, you've broken the whole law. Let me ask you this, if you're driving down the highway and you're going uh, in a 70 mile zone, 78, have you broken the law? If you go 75, have you broken the law? If you go 71, have you broken the law? Yeah, you have. Some of you are going to argue for grace. I'm just making an example of that and making a point. Breaking the law is breaking the law. And the law will... Does a policeman have the right to pull you over going 71 miles an hour? Absolutely. For you will be judged by that law. That's what the law is. Now he goes on and he says, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not just because you heard it. But the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, and this is where he talks about staying faithful to your conscience, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, and there are Gentiles who who love their parents, there are Gentiles or nations, there are people who don't steal and don't commit adultery. All right, so they're actually that's in the law of God, and they did those things. They didn't even realize it was of the law of God. When they, by the nature of doing what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't know it, they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as a moral code, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know what is will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teaches others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now do you see why God called Rabbi Saul to preach the gospel 
to Gentiles because he could defend preaching to the Gentiles against the Jews. He could speak to them about that. God needed a man who would forge into this gospel going to all nations that got it and understood it and could penetrate through the laws of the Judaizers and fight for this gospel going to all nations and all people groups. And that's why he did. Can you imagine if this were a court case and if it were a courtroom that he is just putting his finger to them? It's because of you. Who do you think you are? Woo! He goes on and he says, and, and as we look at the court case and the files of the Jews, and he presents the two witnesses against the Jews, the one being the law of God. Who are you to judge others with this law? Being a light to the Gentiles and a light to the nations, that's what Israel was for. And you were supposed to present this gospel and present the pure law of God. And you were supposed to be their teachers. And yet as you're speaking to them and as you're judging them and as you're condemning them, you are doing the same thing, breaking those laws. That's the first witness against the Jews. Then he presents his second witness. Circumcision. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. You think by doing a religious rite of circumcision given to Abraham, that you're a child of Abraham, just because you followed suit in a physical rite? But if you do not hold to that covenant which was given to Abraham, and you don't hold to the law that was added to the promise of Abraham, if you don't hold to any of that, what good is the circumcision? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Logic. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. As, as Ezekiel prophesied, it's a circumcision of the heart. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God Ooh, strong now what is he doing what is what is the genius of Paul what is he trying to say and so he takes more times more time with the Jews and he says this to them. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much, much, much in every way. Yes, there is value. Yes, there is purpose. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given a revelation of God that no other people group had. 
It started with Abraham. It went to his children. Unto Moses who called forth a nation. And God not only revealed himself as the God of creation, but he then revealed himself as the God of the people of Abraham. Abraham being a son of Heber, calling them Hebrews. And to Isaac and to Jacob who he named Israel. And to Israel he revealed this law to the nation that he would be in covenant with them. And he revealed himself as their healer. He revealed himself as their righteousness. He revealed himself as their shepherd. He revealed himself over and over and over through many different aspects. These oracles of God, these words of God that no other people group had this understanding of the revelation of who God is. There's great value in that. And he did it so that they would become a light to reveal to all nations who God was. There's only one God, not many. He's not an idol. And so there's great value in God's revelation to them. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Oh, now that's a great verse. Many people don't believe in God because of the way Christians act. Does that nullify the witness of God? Right? There's still a God despite the poor efforts of Christians. It doesn't nullify the fact that God is still who He says He is. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, though that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. No, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What is Paul doing in his opening argument? In Paul's genius and legal mind, what Paul just did was dismantled every system of belief and any ability for man to think that he was right and just. He took on all nations and and clearly showed that they were idolaters, self-loving and loathing and did great acts of ungodliness and they all deserved to be judged. But then he turned to the Jews who had the law of God, the revelation of God's oracles and words, and the act of covenant through circumcision, and having that, they in fact as a nation were sinful and would be judged by that same law. Therefore, the conclusion of Paul is this, and it is genius. You ready for it? (laughs) He says this. What then... What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles and nations, are all under sin. 
He just leveled the playing field. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is in need of an escape from the judgment of God who is holy and must judge all sin. That means you're all guilty. And he says this, for there is none righteous, no, not one. That pierces the heart of a self-righteous person. And then he goes on and he says, no one understands God and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Could you imagine preaching that today? We're a little bit too shy to do it. We're too afraid to. But when you ask your neighbor if they're going to heaven or hell, and they will say, I'm a good person. You can quote Paul by saying, there are none good, no, not one. We are altogether worthless and sinners before God. That offends people. And I'll be honest with you, I remember when I was young and I read that, I was offended because I thought, I'm seeking God. But in all reality, I was doing it for selfish reasons. And many times we present the gospel, get this, we present the gospel in a consumer mentality to appeal to people's self. We say, in order for you not to go to hell, why don't you receive Jesus? And so that appeals to their self-concern over the fact that they have offended God. We make it a deal for them. You can have eternal life if you get the magic ring around the carousel and grab the cross and you can go to heaven and not go to hell. What we don't present is that in fact you must die on the cross with Jesus Christ because in all of your actions and in all of your ways you have offended a holy God. That doesn't go over too well. But I'm sorry you cannot escape that truth and come into the kingdom. You must come to a knowledge of your sinfulness before you will ever keep a Savior. Now, we go on and he goes, <laughs> it gets worse. He says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Now look at he's describing everyone in that courtroom. He's describing everyone in the world. He's describing not only the nations and the pagans, he's describing the Jews themselves. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world and the whole world and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There is no human being that can live the law of God perfectly in their effort. And therefore, all are condemned by the wrath of God to His judgment of sin. That is the response in the courtroom. Silence. Nothing can be said to this truth. No excuse can be given. He's railed against every human being. We are all sinners. He goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short the glory of God. We are a fallen people. We are born in sin. And there is nothing you can do that will bring any level of righteousness to your life. The word in the Greek is harmatia. Harmatia means to miss the mark. It's the word for sin. Harmatia. To miss the mark. This is a good illustration. But in fact, those arrows should be about a mile away from the target. Not that close. For there is only one who ever hit the mark. And as the silence of the courtroom is stunning, and everyone finds themselves guilty before a holy and just God, Paul waits, I would imagine, that length of time to when it penetrates to the soul and you begin to conceive the fact that I am utterly lost under the weight of this thing. He says, but now! (laughs) The righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, oh, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. The only way of escape for you and I from God's wrath is faith in what Jesus Christ did on that cross. That's it. You cannot come into the kingdom any other way. You cannot bypass the cross of Jesus Christ. You must join him on it. You must be put to death and buried to rise in newness of life. Paul, in his opening argument, 
levels the death sentence and the guilt to everyone so that he could offer to everyone the one way of escape, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. It is the only way of salvation. He goes on to say this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Messiah Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. A just and righteous God allowed his word to put on flesh and become the justifier. So that salvation is found in the grace of God alone, apart from any man and any works. It is only by what Jesus did, standing condemned before a holy God, taking on our sins upon his body on that cross and taking the full wrath of the righteous judge against all unrighteousness and sin and pouring out the full measure of his eternal wrath upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I may receive the gift of justification and be pardoned though our sin was fully paid for. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that I am not ashamed of, nor is Paul. And he goes on to declare that. And he concludes by this. Then what becomes our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? <laughs> no, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles and nations also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, not a jot or tittle changed. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, he completed its purpose. And by holding himself on that cross, the wrath poured out and the law is finished. It is finished. Finished, and now the law of faith is instilled, and now salvation is available to all people at all times through faith in Jesus Christ. Closing of his opening argument. That is the preface, the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Romans.